going to have 2 million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm elections. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this... Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. We've got a stunner here for you today. Just a great episode. Hell of a lineup. I feel great about it. And it started off hot because Duncan started taking clothes off right before we... It's like, I don't want the jacket to show up on the mic. It's It's like like 65 degrees in here. No, no, it's like windbreaker material, though. You can pick it up on the mics a little bit. It's a little distracting. I just think you got you trying to get your guns out. Well, they look good. I mean, it's just insta-thought material everywhere here. I have lost 70 pounds now. Is that wow? Right? Seven zero. Yeah. Are you thinking about maybe like uh, tapering it off? Leveling that? Leveling it yeah. out? You're crushing it, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could tell by your consumption on Sunday, at least we have a football reprieve. No, yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, it's football season, so I've given, I've given myself a cheat day, if you will. We got together. We got together for the week one NFL. I got to tell you, fellas, that was quite a feast. You know, we had wings. We I, had, I was genuinely stunned. Yeah. I didn't know we had like so many chefs on the show. <laughs> it was Holmes, like top chefs made these yeah. ribs that, like, I mean, I, I think I ate over half all of them. Tell the us wings a, you made, incredible, Duncan. Thank you, thank you. Tell us a little bit about uh, the prep there. Well, you did. You don't always marinate a rib. In fact, I'd never done it before, but I saw this recipe. I think it was a Myron Mixon. Uh, yeah. recipe that I did a little adjustment to it was like orange juice and ginger ale and soy sauce and then a little bit of like a uh, a ranch yeah mm. dried ranch yeah and you mix it together and you let them sit overnight and then you, you bring them up and then you do your traditional dusting and everything else and what I loved is, is is there were like I, I was calling them like rib chicken nuggets yeah because they were like bite size yeah you gotta get them cut down that's the key oh, you gotta ask the butcher brilliant. to cut those things down so they become appetizer portions yeah and then I baked those wings, which was, you know. Which, which shocked me because yeah. they tasted like they were fried. I mean, these are these are incredible wings. And I did I did half with the, you know, regular buffalo. And mm-hmm. then the other ones I did like a cilantro lime. Oh, they were so good. Thing. You just sort of throw that on at the end and then dust them with some salt. In there. And you had a couple of special moves with the convection. Oh, the convection's key because yeah. you got to get out a little bit of that moisture. Otherwise, you can't really bake wings unless you pull out that moisture from the skin. Mm-hmm. You know, but because those are crisp. I mean, these, yeah. I, when you told me they were baked, I was stunned. And then we did the queso blanco with the chorizo. Oh. That stuff was great. Man, I mean, this was a hell of a lineup. Yeah, and you get football. On yeah, top of all this plus football. The only downside is you fellas had to watch your teams. I know. <laughs> Super rough. I mean, week one, uh, Ashbrook obviously being a Bengals fan, they go to o- OT. Uh, Colts go to OT. Mm-hmm. And we somehow walked out of that with a tie and a loss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Could have been better. But I got to tell you, as a Viking fan, I felt terrific. Oh, yeah. yeah that's that's a good. No. Trouncing the Packers. Terrific about it. I'm just hoping this is uh, more of this to come. Yeah, I, Dude, I that receiver, that. The, the receiver the Vikings got, Justin Jefferson, Jefferson man. Mike, yeah. fantastic. Well, listen, football's back in full effect, and that's why we invited on for an interview today somebody you'd heard from before, Senator Tommy Tuberville 
Um, and he is the reason we're interested in this is because he, you know, he coached Auburn right. and many other places. Yeah. And was a really successful college football coach. He has a lot of concern about how name, image, and likeness is being portrayed here across the NCAA. And what I'm talking about is the new deal where college athletes are actually compensated. Yeah. Right. For their name. Image, and I and love it. It's, a, it's, it's long overdue, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so we all have various opinions on that. You've heard us talk about it on the show before. Here is somebody that from the inside sort of understands what administrations and coaches are dealing with, wants to put some rules in the road. They're still formulating an opinion on this, but he's got some great stuff. Um, in addition, we, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. Let's go. Here. I mean, what a lineup. That's uh, crazy. It's a great show. You'd be happy to get this in a week or in, in a month, and, and this is one episode. One episode. I mean, she's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And she's going to be the next governor of Arkansas. Can't wait for you to get to that. Uh, and then today's sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks is back. Masterworks oh, yeah. is back. They're selling some art. We're going to get to that here in a minute, too. But listen, I don't... I, look, we're in a sprint mm-hmm. at this point. Yep. Right? An absolute sprint. And so it's important to, like take inventory of where you are personally because ultimately you vote on sort of where your family's priorities and where your economic situation and all those things and this article caught my my eye uh, the other day Americans spent more in taxes in 2021 than on food clothing and health care combined think about that jeez wow. think about that think, think about what's being done to this country I mean what the hell I, get, I never understand how anyone survives that I want to increase your taxes argument because it's always somebody else that they're arguing and it always ends up to be you. Bingo. Like like uh, the the Joe Biden lie of how like, oh, listen, no one's going to pay more for anything unless you're making over $400,000. And then he just hands out this like uh, gift of $10,000 basically to his supporters and you and any PhD with like gender studies who's got a lot of debt, yeah, you get you get free money. And who's paying for all that? It's it's everybody else. It's everybody the else. It's the tax. So this was from CNS News, and according to newly released released data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans in 2021 once again spent more on average on taxes than they did on food, clothing, and healthcare combined. During 2021, according to and this is stuff only you understand, mm-hmm. smug. It's Table R1 of the BLS Consumer Expenditure Service. I don't know what the hell that means. Nerd shit. I, I like, yeah, but I like the upshot. <laughs> the upshot is uh, American consumer units mm-hmm. spent an average of $15,495 on food, clothing, and healthcare combined, while paying $16,729 in total taxes. And, and this is what I think is very important to put into perspective here is if you think about the necessities of life, Right, you know, food, clothing, healthcare. The government is demanding more than those necessities, right? From yeah. every single American. Not only that, but they seem to think they could also do some of those things better than you. Yeah, well, and, it, and it costs more. And we're seeing a, <laughs> we're seeing a, a, a completely lawless government right now because Congress did not vote on on these handouts to right. Joe Biden supporters. This is this is a lawless administration which is just. Doling out this money, they're they're charging everybody more than they're spending on food, clothing, and healthcare, and they're giving it out to his friends. You're right. It's truly remarkable. It's stunning. Because at some level, when you break through the the politics and like the tried and trusted tr- trusted lines of attack during campaign season, 
ultimately what you're evaluating is whether or not you're getting your investment, right? Right. Whether or not this is working out for you like it should be as compared to other administrations in different times. And I don't think there's a single person, if you're being honest with yourself, other than maybe the art history degree Mm -hmm. major who decided to go live in their parents' basement for the last 15 years and not actually produce anything on the the planet, um, that can say with a straight face that this is working out how they envisioned. What are you, what are you getting for your $16,729.73 that the average person is putting into the government? It's a worse life. You're getting higher food prices yeah. in exchange for that. It's not like and that's the, the, It's not like they know. build a bunch of great new roads. It's not like I-75 going through Ohio has been repaved over and over again. No, they're they're not they're not giving you anything new. They're right. just charging you more for less and they're, they're, they're and that that also is, is 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 the whopper is that like if it's more than you're spending on food uh uh, uh shelter and or food clothing and, and healthcare combined right which are all more expensive than before but even still they're getting a bigger share of your money yeah. I mean that's insane. like the number one issue right, right now to Americans is things cost too much money things cost too much but money. you know what costs even more the government the government there you go <laughs> It's just amazing it. how shit Duncan they just are. distilled it. That's yeah. it right there. Incredible. Um, so, with that in mind, it's nice to see what the Biden administration is turning their attention to. After doling out cash to their political supporters, the Washington Post reports that Biden turns urgently to the critical task of holding the Senate. Mm-hmm. Here's the late control of the Senate will affect items critical to the Biden legacy, including the confirmation of more judges. The elevation of a Supreme Court justice, if a vacancy emerges in the high court, the unfolding of a high-profile investigation into the president's son, Hunter Biden, <laughs> the confirmation of Biden officials, and potentially Republican efforts to impeach a Biden cabinet official and possibly the president himself. I mean, think about that. Like he's concerned about holding the Senate so that his son is not investigated for all the crazy. I mean, the, it's a litany of charges against hunter biden of essentially just selling access to hostile governments to china like this is all now very well documented and he's like i gotta hold on to the senate or else my kid goes to jail <laughs> what <laughs> what it's really personalizing it right it's like we've gone from senate fire like the senate is now hunter biden's firewall yeah <laughs> yeah he's like we gotta hold it folks Hunter can't go to jail. He's my last son. Save the Senate. Save my son. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. So he's promoting all these Senate candidates, uh, but they make note of a couple of different things. His approval ratings remain relatively <laughs> yeah. low. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Holmes, you mentioned it uh, on one of last week's shows, but, um, you know, we're starting to see some some polling now post Labor Day where the fun, you know, the, the polling is now, is now starting to trend towards the fundamentals of the electorate. And you love to see that. You love to see it. We're going to get into that in a second because it will put actual numbers behind it. But like, look, we're not making shit up here on the Ruthless Variety yeah. program. We've actually done this for a long time. We have? Yeah. It oh. turns out. <laughs> turns out we got a little experience. It turns out. Yeah. But, but it's nice to know that part, look, as we said last week, when Democrats are saying that the fundamentals of this election have, have changed, and that they favor Democrats, what they point to are ballot questions in Senate races. Because right. it's not the president's approval rating. It's not Americans' view of the economy has somehow changed. It's the, the ballot in, in all of these races. Well, it's starting to leak a little bit on yeah. them, right? And so, anyway, that that's what's happening here. It, and Biden, 
and his team of dimwits mm-hmm. have not figured that shit out. They're still latching on. They're like, well, the Senate is what we care about because they think that's the kind of the last bastion protecting honor, right. but also presumably where they can have some political success. It's amazing how that is currently the only job that Kamala is essentially doing well is she's the 51st vote to keep like Hunter out of jail. Right. <laughs> like that's her job. She can't get a rocket into space. She says that the border is under control when he's like, e- e- even Cuck Todd is like, holy shit, 2 million people for the first time. Are you telling me that like the border security? She's like, the border is secure in the sense of that. Uh, it's a priority. Uh, hold on. Hold on. I got a text. I got to go make sure Hunter doesn't go to jail. <laughs> I mean, like that's her only job right now. She's just such a wildly bad interview. It's <laughs> just incredible. incredible. It's incredible. So you put you pop this sucker in there. I felt like you you deserve the. Uh, I don't <laughs> even like talking about these assholes, but you like it. So go ahead. Smug. I love it so much. So so this is a, a news item. It says uh, this was reported in Variety. It says Showtime announces the Lincoln Project docu series. Hell yeah, yeah. So. Uh, they're doing a docu series, like one of those six, seven part deals on the Lincoln Project, presumably from 2020. Here's what I've been told: I've been told that it, like every lib media out- outlet, it started as a project to like highlight these heroic Republicans saving the, you know, the country from their previous endeavors. Yeah. Right. But about halfway through, they got into like the Weaver stuff. <laughs> Which is like, oh, no. Right? And if you recall, the Lincoln Project just totally fell apart and became just a, a laughing, running joke. Yeah. I mean, one that we contributed to heartily here on the Variety program <laughs> with Weaver Man Shanty and everything else. So I'm told, and I haven't seen this, and I don't have a lot of faith in Showtime. Let me just make that clear. But I'm told that this thing could actually include like watching some train wreck type shit. That's awesome. This yeah. is basically like doing a documentary on Millie Vanilli yeah. as the background track starts to loop. <laughs> oh, girl, man. you know it's girl, you know it's girl, you know it's. Shout out to anyone old enough to know and get that reference. I threw that one because in Because you, you'll boomers. love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's coming in October, pal? That's right. So it says it's going to premiere on, oh, let me see. I think it said October 6th or no, October 7th at 8 p.m. And episodes will air back to back each friday at 8 p.m i mean this so, so there's five episodes it says all five episodes will also release on demand and on the streaming platforms for showtime on october 7th so like all of them are going to drop october 7th. i'm going to watch Hell yeah. well i mean i want to see like the all these wreck. clowns coming out and being like yes we like defend democracy and then like police sirens like are in the distance five fat and you weaver being like oh no <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how great that's going to That's must-see television. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I, to be clear, you're going to have some cringe shit to watch. I mean, it's oh, not yeah. like these oh, people yeah. ideologically agree I mean, you're, you're essentially seeing a bunch of grifters being like, yes, I am uh, protecting democracy as they're paying off their mortgages and liens. Well, <laughs> I, I don't expect an expose. Let's no, just put it that no, way. No, but I mean, look, the Hillary documentary about her losing in 2016. Oh, it's so good. You got you to... Gotta, you know, wade through a lot of that bullshit, but yeah. like, it's worth it because it was so funny. Yeah, and I think this will probably be the same sort of deal. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so obviously, Sunday was 21st anniversary of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate that it fell on the first football Sunday. Yeah, because 
I, you know, like I'm, I'm tormented. I, I view the first week of NFL Sunday like a national holiday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am in like the Honestly, best Honestly, I, I would have completely supported them moving it a week because that, to me, that should be a day. It's important for every American to reflect and have that as, as I mean, it's it's a day that on the counter, every time you see it, you know, you should bring feel the horror. You should, you know, like, never forget means more than just like a tagline. It's because, you know, and you, you know, some of our listeners may not have been alive Right. To remember that day. But that was, I mean, that was one of the most traumatic events of my life. Totally. Me too. Me too. And so anyway, I had that conflict. and But I didn't, con- I don't, on the first NFL Sunday, I do not consume political news. Hmm. I just do not do it. And it was tough for me because it's like, you know, 9-11, I just, I, I brings me all kinds of different places. Anyway, uh, I was interested enough to try to figure out, like, what are Democrats saying about this? Yeah. Because if you recall, last year, the entire month leading into the 20th anniversary was their attempt to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. Which right. ended up being just like another tragedy right there. Total tragedy, all self-made. We've covered it ad nauseum. But anyway, I was interested. So it turns out, uh, if you look at what VP Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton we're talking about this is again these according to foxnews.com great reporting in their media side uh they were inf- in emphasizing fighting extremism and attacks from within ah we know where they're going with that mm. like like this is like a, a couple of weeks after joe biden basically has like the most horrific imagery for this kind of like primetime chat where he's right. got like red lights and soldiers behind him and he's like if you oppose me, you're you're a fascist and an right. enemy of the state, <laughs> right? And then they come out with messaging of being like, "Well, actually, you know, we got terrorists here now, yeah, right." <laughs> and they're the, we call them the folks who oppose our opinions, right? I mean, this, this is like, are you serious? Like, this is a day when you had you know almost three thousand Americans were murdered, right? And, and you're using this as an opportunity to attack half the country. That's what they do, right? So NBC's Chuck Todd interviewed Kamala. Uh, she was in Houston, Texas, asked Harris if the threat that America faced after the events of uh, September 11th, 901, or 2001, sorry, um, were equal to the, or greater to the threats that President Biden had been talking about coming from within. First of all, the question's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's insane. Yeah. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. I mean, how could you even formulate, imagine the information loop that you subscribe to to think that this is in the same category. And I think it's telling right. because it's like if he didn't ask something this bonkers batshit, he'd go back to work and everyone would look at him and be like, why didn't you say Republicans are terrorists, bro? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's what journalism on this become. On this day of national mourning, I, yeah. I really want to know, do you think half the country is fascist? Yeah. I mean, but do you that's think they're terrorists? But he, that's what Biden has said in his speech. That's some sick shit, though. That is. Right? That's, that's incredibly awful. And yeah. no, man, maybe, let me give you the benefit of the doubt, maybe he was trying to put a finer point on that. Right. Right? Because that is what Biden is saying. In, has, def- in his defense. He has a stutter. Yeah. yeah. He has a stutter. <laughs> right. Right. So, but what she said, uh, what Kamala said is that uh, each are very different, but each are dangerous. Ah. God. It's just false it's, equivalency. It, it also, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have to be said, but... September 11th was an unprecedented event in American history. Right. World, hi- world history. Like world history. It's never happened before. And then all of a sudden, her political opponents or some people that she's... Like, why would she even make this equivalent? She is the worst vice president <laughs> we have ever had. Ever. Joe Biden should have taken Karen Bass. But what, she, <laughs> what does like, it say? Kamala Harris is awful. What does it say about... Uh, 
NBC as a network that the vice president of the United States feels comfortable comparing <laughs> terrorists, you know, slitting people's throats with box cutters and flying airplanes yep. into our tallest right? buildings with like other just like Americans. Like I mean, that, that, that you felt comfortable enough to say that on broadcast and, television and in this country almost pushed. It's pretty fucking and disgusting. Of, of all the days, because there was, you know, the, the reason it's a day that you know you reflect and 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 remember what happened on the days. You had one of the planes where Americans, right, heroes, uh, heroes bound together, stormed and, the cockpit and stormed the cockpit. I mean, there's no greater symbol of American unity and greatness and, and selflessness and love for your nation. And on this, of all days, she decides to roll out, well, actually, yeah, half the country are terrorists. Unbelievable. Right. Like, what a sick person to do this. And uh, But also, like, I don't know, maybe I'm too into politics, but isn't this the same week where a Democrat county administrator murdered an investigative journalist? Allegedly, yeah, yeah. I mean, allegedly murdered. The, I mean, so... Let's stop with right. this like partisan assignment of threats to democracy, uh-huh. shall we? I mean, there are crazy people everywhere. But the idea that you can equate anything that's happening in this country with Al-Qaeda and their efforts to knock down buildings and destroy America on 9-11 mm-hmm. is insane. It is. It's it totally is. bonkers. She, she, she doesn't belong in the, as the vice president. She doesn't deserve another four years. I cannot wait to defeat her. Uh, totally. And we should defeat all, every candidate she supports in the process. Um, they asked Hillary Clinton a similar thing, by the way. And she tried to, she tried to like work around it a little bit. Her quote was, um, I give President Biden a lot of credit for trying to continue to reach out to people. <laughs> I miss that. While still sounding the alarm about threats to democracy. Hmm. Did you guys catch the outreach piece? I, I, I might have missed that. I think I, that red backdrop <laughs> maybe left a little bit to be desired. Yeah, not not a lot of healing and unity. And also, you know, folks might remember, the, the, speaking of Hillary Clinton, it's an anniversary. It's the sixth anniversary of when Hillary Clinton, remember, she like, I don't know what happened. She like passed out and got thrown in a van. That was the, the wi- campaign trail. That was the wildest thing. So <laughs> that, in, in that case, was completely in insane. Case, in case you guys forgot, she basically, she passed out at a 9-11 memorial. Yeah thing during you know this is 2016 she basically has to be dragged into a windowless you know sprinter van this is after weeks of like you know there was a lot of many people are saying that maybe she has health issues right what's going on she's but that was beyond the pale we weren't allowed to discuss it remember that and then she she gets whisked away to like her her, chelsea clinton's penthouse apartment in manhattan which disappears for a couple hours then she's so wild they're like oh she's being taken to chelsea's you know penthouse apartment in manhattan you know this is a woman of the people and then all the reporters all the reporters wait wait outside like pavlov's dogs with their cameras for her to come down and be like oh i'm fine you know she like had her up there for two i mean just think about that like we forget because that 2016 election was so wild but like hillary clinton stepped in it so often it's hysterical oh it's incredible and just, I mean, I invite everyone to go back and see the video because it's incredible to see. Like, you have all these people trying to, like, surround her so that no one can get video. Everyone can see what's happening. She was like a punch drunk. Dude, like, she you know, looks right like before, a freshman at last legs, call. The legs go limp. Yeah. Remember so, this? Yes. Like, feet down. Like, she, she her, her, like, knees buckle. It's like, you know, right when the ref's about to call a TKO. Like, this boxer's <laughs> done. He's like, no, it's He's over. out on his feet. And then she just, like, she just drops. And they just, like... <laughs> Grab her and throw her like a sack of potatoes into a van. 
And everyone's supposed to be like, well, this is totally normal, man. <laughs> well, you had to be. Any Republican who described what they saw was just vilified. Oh, by yeah. The right. Oh, you're not right. allowed to say well, what, what you did, see What did they end up trying to say the excuse was? That it was a hot day? Dehydrated or something. Yeah, yeah hot day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been outside on a lot of hot days, man. I've never gone sack of potatoes. <laughs> You may have been sack of potatoes, but I remember a broadcast or two that we've had here. You've it been had like nothing that. to do. It may have had something to do with it dehydration. Was dehydration. Yeah, <laughs> dehydration. <laughs> All right. So before we get into our next segment, I think we should talk a little bit about about football with Tommy Tuberville. Let's get that going. I want to welcome to the program, good friend of the program. You've heard him here before, Senator Tommy Tuberville. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How's everybody? We're good, coach. I mean, I got to tell you, we're in football season here. We're just as enthusiastic as you can be. I imagine you are, too. Uh, you know, it's it's always busy here in uh, Washington, D.C., in what I call the sewer. But uh, <laughs> it is, uh, it's good to have football season going on. It gives me something else to think about during the day. You know, like today, hey, I, I got a chance to go and maybe watch a game tonight or whatever. It's just it's exciting to have something different to do. And uh uh, yeah, we're, well, making I, a little, we're making a little progress up here, but uh, right now we're kind of spinning our wheels. Well, we are spinning our wheel. I want to talk about uh, your efforts as it as it pertains to nil in particular. But before I do that, uh, let's get a little overview of the college season, and then I know you follow NFL. I mean, hell, if you can play football, you're you're following it. Where do you think things stand out there? Uh, you're talking about the NFL. Both. Let's start with college. What do we think? Well, well, you know, college sports has been my life for 40 years and uh, never spent much time in the NFL. Of course, trained a lot of young men to go to the NFL, but college sports has done a lot for our country uh, and for a lot, a lot of people, uh, men and women. And I think we've got to understand that. Uh, our education system, and that's one of the reasons I ran for this position here in Washington, D.C., because I've seen how education has dropped in the last 40 years. Uh, where You know, a lot of these young men and women, especially in the urban areas, you know, they go to school for 12 years, they get out, they get a diploma, and heck, they can't even read their diploma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got so many that can't read, so many that can't write. Uh, <clears throat> we've, you know, we're teaching a lot of things in our schools that we shouldn't be teaching, uh, and so, uh, I ran for this position and, uh, I won and I'm on the health education, uh, uh, committee and I get to spend a lot of time talking about education, looking at the future of education. So I think it, uh, you know, uh, it's important that we understand why sports is important in our country, mm-hmm. high school, college, it teaches so many things. And if we get away from that, uh, right now, we're getting ready to talk about NIL, we're getting away from the education part, and we're talking about money. It seems like everything in this country comes down to about money and money and money. And and that's fine. That's what makes the world run. But you got to understand, you got to earn that money. Uh, and you got to get it the right way. And and uh, uh, I hate that, you know, we're going down this path that we possibly could turn into a minor league system college sports uh, for the NFL or NBA. Uh, that's not what we should be, but uh, it looks like we're headed down some path in terms of uh, 
uh, these young men and women making money in college sports. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. So what we're talking about is the name, image, and likeness. Uh, shorthanded is nil, which uh, following a bunch of litigation over a bunch of different years permits athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness, as it suggests in the acronym. Uh, this is obviously controversial for years, right? I mean, you saw Ohio State players, you know, better part of a decade ago, signing autographs for 50 bucks that basically had their entire college careers destroyed over, uh, which I think we could all agree was was not the right way to handle it. But on the other side, then we've got, you know, boosters and everybody else putting together these big pots of money that basically are trying to to lure recruits uh, with financial incentives, which of course, for somebody who operated in college athletics at the time you did for as long as you did, that's like the third rail that you stay, stay as far away from as you possibly can and got a lot of people in trouble if they didn't. Uh, so, so how does this whole thing sit right now as you see it? Well, well let's look, look at the background here for a minute. You know, for years, young men and women have come to uh, a university on a scholarship and uh, over the years, certain things have been added to that scholarship. If your parents made such such and such amount of money under that amount of money, then uh, while they were going to college and getting that scholarship, they could get three or four thousand dollars cash a semester, non-taxed. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we added the cost of attendance, um, which was another way to give money to student athletes. That's Every like student ha- housing and stuff like that. Well, yeah. Uh, but but there, we got to remember now, a scholarship pays for room, board, intuition, oh, yeah. books, and you. So you really don't have any, you you don't have any uh, bills to pay. But uh, so they they pass this cost of attendance. So at the end of the day, basically, almost every athlete at every university got three or four thousand dollars, either a semester or a year, on top of their scholarship, on top of the grants. So there's a lot of money already given. Now, what's happened over the last 10 years, the money has become gigantic in terms of these schools uh, making money on their TV contracts. So these players are looking at this going, wait a minute, you're using my name uh, and my image and my likeness to make all this money. uh, And why can't the players get some of this? Hey, I've always been for every player getting as much as they possibly can. There's got to be a limit to this. But last they created a lawsuit. Last year, the Supreme Court says you have to allow players in college to make money off their name, image, and likes. That's basically started this whole thing. So for a year now, these players have been going out and, and doing commercials and signing autographs and making all this money. But the problem is it's taking a lot of money. It's sucking the air out of money donations to universities that build facilities for all athletes, men and women to pay for scholarships, to do a lot of things that help every sport. You got to remember now, uh, most sports don't make money. They lose money. And so that money's got to come from somewhere. Uh, Most women's sports lose money. Uh, They don't get the people buying tickets in most of the sports, maybe basketball a little bit, maybe maybe, uh, um, softball. Uh, Then you have swimming. You have the Olympic sports that don't make money. So that money's got to come from somewhere to pay for all those sports. So we're running into a situation now after a year that all these boosters are saying, you know, I'm not going to give money to the university uh, to build facilities and to pay for scholarships. 
I'm going to give my money to individual players. And so the money now is not going into the athletic programs. And so you're going to have a lot of these programs that's going to go bankrupt. They're going to have to start cutting out, you know, some sports, uh, possibly women's sports and uh, maybe cutting back on scholarships. So uh, we're taking from Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. And so how do we rectify that? And so a month or so ago, Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat, and I got together and said, listen, you know a lot about sports. I played college sports. Let's see if we can help. Uh, I hate that we have to get involved in this. And so that's the avenue that we're headed as we speak. The NCAA will not – They've pretty much washed their hands of this. They're trying to put in a few rules and regulations. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they've been doing a whole lot. I mean, it's no. basically as anything interacts with college athletics. I mean, whether it's sports gambling or whether it's nil or what have you, they basically take a step back and like, all right, well, whatever you all want to do. Well, they don't want lawsuits and, and uh, nobody wants to be in a lawsuit. But right now they've got a lot of lawsuits going on on other things. NCAA has been a good organization, but when it, when it comes to standing up for what's right or wrong, they kind of wash their hands. Well, they've washed their hands of this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for the last year, uh, what I've seen as a former coach being here in Washington, D.C., I've seen uh, and heard from coaches, commissioners, athletic directors. Listen, we don't have any rules. I mean, it's the wild, wild west. Uh, we don't have rules like we used to when you could actually go out and had a timeline of when you could recruit. And, uh, you know, when you could act, actually do things in, in the proper manner. And so we've got 50 states now that are doing everything totally different. Nobody's on the same wavelength. So Joe Manchin and I have said, listen, you know, the players are going to make money. Supreme Court said that's over. And so they're going to make money. What we're trying to do is put some organization to the rules, regulations, and give the coaches and players and parents an opportunity to have a real life instead of just every day being pummeled by recruiting and recruiters when uh, there should be a time limit to that. So we're not trying to stop anything. We're just trying to get college sports back to some normalcy mm-hmm. and, and really understand that, hey, uh, everybody needs to be the same way. Everybody needs to do the, go by the same rules. Uh, the money is going to be offered. Uh, the problem, that, again, that I would like to be able to put some kind of sense to is be able to save a lot of these sports, women's sports and Olympic sports, when it looks like in the future, if we keep going in this direction, there's no money that's going to be there to help pay for some of these. So that's well, kind of your where point we're at. Is a, your, your point is a good one. One of the things, and I imagine this is kind of what you're delving into, but you hear from an awful lot of college coaches is – how do you reorient the recruiting process to be competitive, right? I mean, it's one thing if you're Nick Saban at Alabama, who Mansion's boys with, by the way, where yeah. you know where you know that these these guys are going to have the ultimate platform to showcase their talent. But you know, a half step or two steps underneath that in those programs, those coaches are trying to figure out what if they have to put together financial incentives themselves, right? I mean, do they have to ultimately organize? boosters to take a look at their program to support players for their own advertising or is that part of the job which has got to be i mean for those of them who've been in the business for a while that's got to be a really disorienting experience yeah and again we go back to what i talked talked about earlier in, in this podcast was uh 
the th- just remember that the things that really help our country is teaching teamwork and dedication and and a sense of being uh, a team player. All those things. Well, what what's being under attack right now is we're we're making everybody an individual contractor. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's that's going to be there. Uh, we've got to get to a point. There's there's these groups now at every university called the collectives, and they're the groups within the boosters of each university going out there raising money, uh, millions of dollars, to put into a pot to let the coaches know this is how much money you've got to go out and offer to these players. Some groups are going to have. 15, 20 million dollars. Some teams are going to have, you know, five hundred thousand dollars. I mean, so what's going to happen here is you're not going to have a sense of balance. Now, going back to Joe Manchin and myself, we're not getting involved in that. Now, I'd like to put some kind of um, regulations and making sure they're doing it the right way and offering money, but we're not into that point. Well, yeah, let, we let, to let, let me stop you on that point because I, okay. I think that's a big I think that's a big issue, right? Because when name, image, and likeness is litigated, what it's talking about is specifically players who've risen to a level that garner the kind of attention where they have people who want to buy their jerseys, who want them to sign autographs, who want to you know do shoe ads or whatever. But where where this has been sort of driven down to is how do these boosters collectively put a pot of money together where you can then go to somebody who's just as anonymous as, as I am and say, you're guaranteed this amount of money if you come to this university, right? Which is kind of totally perverts the entire purpose from the beginning. Yeah. And what most of them are doing is, is they're giving money to these collectives uh, in the regards of marketing. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, say I own a shoe business and uh, I sell dress shoes. And so I said, listen, I want to give $100,000 uh, to put in the collectives and whoever you give my $100,000 to, I want them to do an advertisement for me for my shoes. Uh, and Or I want to have them come to my stores and sign autographs. That's all legal. Now, that also is deductible because it is marketing money from their business. So they get to write that money off. If you give money to a foundation, it was passed up here a few years ago uh, in Washington, D.C., that uh, foundation money is not deductible. Uh, so so now you're getting a, a, a better, better deal. Yeah, better deal by the boosters of giving money because they can write that off in their business. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this. Uh, again, we want to put some sense of reality of coaches have called me uh, back in May. Usually in May in recruiting in football, everybody's out going talking to players, watching spring practice, you know, getting your list for the next year. I'd call some of my friends who were coaching this past May. Hey, where you at? What, you know, where are you, where are you recruiting at today? Well, I'm not recruiting. I'm out raising money. <laughs> so – Everything's changed. It's all about money now. Whoever's going to have the most money in their collectives, it's and I, I don't know what it was last year. I think they were saying that uh, Texas A&M gave what thirty million dollars or something from their collectives to a recruiting class. Now, right or wrong, that's all legal, by the way. Mm-hmm. But 
that just goes to show you the haves. You, you think that, well, Appalachian State, you think they're going to have $30 million next year to, <laughs> to, to, to offer, you know, recruits. They're not going to have it. Uh, so you're going, you're going to divide even more. You're going to have the have and have nots. That's what's going to happen. But again, the, the cat's out of the bag on that. And then you throw the other problem into the scenario that we have in college sports is the portal transfer portal. You can transfer at any time. Yeah. And, and that, so you're going to have the smaller schools that is going to have the opportunity to, to recruit a good player. And all of a sudden, man, this guy's really good. And then the, one of the big boys comes in and says, I, you know, we want that kid. We're going to give him $500,000 to come. Well, that school doesn't have 500000 So you're not going to be able to build a program uh, off of two and three stars that all of a sudden jump up to a four or five star because how they've grown the first year or so that they've been there. So it's uh, all, all the good players are going to go to the 10 top teams is what's going to happen. So, so to be clear about what you all are trying to do, like you said, you're not trying to shut down the compensation for name, image, and likeness. The courts have spoken on that. Where are you specifically focusing your efforts? Well, just the organization of when you can do it, mm-hmm. who can do it, and put put a recruiting uh, calendar back into the so-called uh, you know, NIL that we have now. There's no there's no calendar. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, but for instance, last year uh, in the state of Alabama, in my state, the schools in the state could not offer. This is my understanding. Could not offer a kid money in high school. In other words, if he's a high school senior, you can say, okay, you come to Auburn or you come to Jacksonville state, or you come to South Alabama, or you come to Alabama and we'll give you a hundred thousand dollar, uh, contract to, you know, for a car company. Well, you couldn't do that because the state law said you can't offer money like that. Mm -hmm. Some States, some States didn't have that. I mean, you got some States out there, you know, uh, even recruiting 11th graders, uh, mm-hmm. say, listen, you know, we're going, we're going to give you this when you give out, you need to go and commit to us. So what you're, what you have right now is again, like I said earlier, it's a wild, wild West. Uh, some people can do it and some people can't, and you can't have that in collegiate sports. It has to be a fair and level playing field. Now it's not going to be a level playing field on the money. Some people have more money than others, but you got to have the ability to at least think you can do it and have some kind of sense of reality and for the coaches of when they can do something and, uh, and stay within the parameters. There's got to be some, you can't, to me, you've got to put rules on coaches because if you take rules off all the coaches and it's no rules, I mean, you are going to have a mess. Oh, yeah. You're going to have, you're going to have, you're going to have, a, uh, there's no limit of coaches now, by the way, there's no limit. So you can go out there and hire 10 coaches and said, hit the road. Don't come back until uh, you've raised this much money and start offering scholarships. I mean, which is what it is, right? I mean, if you were to reorient your program today, what you would do is go out and hire the five best fundraisers you could find and then set them loose, right? I mean, you do deal with offense and defense and special teams a little bit later. We got to raise that money. Yeah, the heck with your offensive line coach and the defensive (laughs) line coach. That's wild. Because players win games. I mean, you know, you, you if you've got the best player, normally you're going to win. Now, you can I've, – I've been known to screw a game or two up. You know, <laughs> most of us have. But, if you know, more than likely, if you've got the best players, you're going to win the game. And so, 
that's what it's coming down to. And I mean, you've got these smaller schools out there trying to raise money to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And it's impossible. So uh, college sports is not going to be like you and I have known, you know, for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to change. And uh, again, Joe Manchin, I want to put some sense of reality into it and give people an idea. Hey, this is exactly what you can do. Uh, if you got the means to do it, go do it. But this is the time limitation. It's not a 12 month recruiting. Uh, you you got to give some of these folks some relief, you know, and, and this is not just football. It's basketball. It's, it's baseball. Uh, you know, we, we all had a recruiting calendar when you could do something, when you could make phone calls. Uh, they don't have that anymore. It yeah. is, uh, it's just go after it and hey, let the best man win. I mean, so one of the interesting, I mean, you look at like what uh, Deion Sanders is doing at Jackson State, yeah. right? Where he's basically, I mean, first of all, it's fascinating because I think he's doing a hell of a job in a lot of ways, but it's fascinating because he doesn't have the kind of budgets or exposure that obviously the big schools do, but he is Deion Sanders, right? And and people like to watch Deion Sanders. So he's he's basically created like an almost like a online reality TV show to, to promote the exposure of these players in the program. And it seems at some level to be working pretty well, but it's an idea of how, how different you would have to run a college program in order to compete. Oh, exactly. And of course it's, it's about contacting and getting in front of these kids. And Deion Sanders is his name, one of the best best athletes I've ever seen. I coached against him when I was at Miami and uh, he was at Florida state. I mean, this guy was unbelievable and players over the years have watched him because of being on the NFL shows and been an NFL player. And uh, you know, we're a big minority in sports and football. And of course Mm -hmm. he's at a school in, in Mississippi and he'll do great there. He'll continue to do great. I won't be, won't be surprised if somebody starts to, say, listen, uh, you know, he's the thing of the future. We're going to take him here, uh, this school. You yeah, know, I've, school I've been surprised be- that hasn't happened already. Yeah. He's changing uh, the game down there. But it does get yeah. a good education in everything you're talking about. I mean, unless right. you're going to entirely revolutionize college athletics and make it so you're trying to provide a platform for exposure and financial compensation, uh, man, there's, there's got to be some rules of the road. Oh, there's got to be. I mean, uh, corporations have rules and regulations. You know, they're, uh, you know, Wall Street has rules and regulations. Everybody that deals with money has got to have some kind of regulation. Banks have regulations. So there's, you got to put some parameters on it. You just can't just say, listen, just anything goes. And right now, that's what we've got. Anything goes. And so we got to, we got to have, we got to start doing contracts. We got to make sure the players are protected. I mean, it, it's easy to say, hey, you come to uh, University X and we're going to give you $200,000 and you get there and you, uh, you know, you get in the meeting one day, you know, he's not quite as good as what we thought. Yeah, then what? Well, where's, the con- where's the contract at? <laughs> you know, do they have to pay it? Yeah. I mean, think about that. I mean, so we've got we've to also protect the players and the parents. Uh, got to make sure they get paid uh, if, if, if all this is good. But, but as we speak, there. There's nothing there to, to protect anybody. You it's can see how a, a players union is, is the next step in that one, right? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, there's some senators up here. Cory Booker's pushed that for years. Every player, sh- they should be union. You know, they, they should be an individual contractor where well, they are that, but you step off into that and uh, you know, the, the taxes have to be paid on everything. 
I'm sure now I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure if you're, you're going to get a million dollars as a quarterback, uh, you know, your four years at, at school X that you're going to have to pay on that million dollars in those four years of taxes. But if you're an individual contractor, you're going to have to pay taxes on your scholarship, everything Mm -hmm. else that you get. And so, um, well, it introduces them to a whole new world, right? Unless you're oh, yeah. an 18 year old yeah. who understands accounting, uh, <laughs> you know, which you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of us who who were adept at that at that age. I mean, you're a business. Yeah, yeah, and, and for 40 years I coached. We every day we'd talk about keeping agents out of our building, keeping yeah. lawyers away from players, accountants, uh, and now everybody's got a lawyer, an accountant. Uh, a banker, uh, you know, an agent. I mean, it's unbelievable. And and you're that you're playing at, at school X, and you got an agent out there selling you 24 hours a day at other schools all across the country. Hey, did you see him? How he played this week? You know, he he can transfer. Uh, you know, come up with some more money. I mean, it, it just it's just it's it's not good for the players. It's not good for the universities, and it's not good for the sport. And we got to protect all three. Yeah, absolutely. So before I let you go. Uh, who's the best team in college football right now? Oh man, I didn't, I didn't see many good ones uh, uh, this past week. Of course, man, I tell everybody, everybody's really on Nick and Alabama. They didn't play very good. You don't play very, and especially on offense, you don't play very well early. Yeah. Uh, I watched, I watched the Cowboys last night. They looked horrendous. You know, <laughs> the, the first game. And of course, um, it's early. Defenses should be ahead early. There mm-hmm. shouldn't be a lot of points scored. Because it's hard to play offense. Defense is nothing but go out there and get lined up and get after it and let the best man win. Offense, I mean, you, 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 you've got to be, you, your timing has got to be on. You've got to have the right people in the right spots. And uh, uh, I think it's going to be a good year, both NFL and college. I've never seen the interest like it is now, man. It's just out of sight. Totally. You know, for what, TV, what TV's done, the interest for all these talk shows. Gambling is now. That, that worries me too about college sports yeah. is gambling is more pre- prevalent, uh, pre- especially prevalent. In game, especially in game stuff, which I think is yeah. there's a right. lot of a lot of opportunity yeah. for problems there. And if you looked and listened to the CEO of Disney today, uh, you know they were thinking about selling the ESPN. Uh, what do you say today? No, we're not selling them. We're going to have our own online gambling on ESPN. Well, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for kids to make money. Yeah. Uh, in that, in terms of endorsements, and I—I I mean, this—we got to get ahead of the curve on this NIL before it really gets out of hand, so we can protect, you know, the the business, the education, the the players, and everything, college sports in general, before this gets out of hand. Because gambling, again, is another thing that we talk every day with our players. Stay away from it. Don't talk to your fraternity brothers because they all gamble. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. All those kids have their. Their, their little games, Rick, you know, I think Rick Neuheisel years ago, yeah. uh, I think he won some money on a, on a board, on a game board, and uh, got in real trouble when he was at the University of Washington because yeah. of that. And, and it, it's uh, uh, now we're kind of putting it all together, and you better have some rules. If not, it's going to get way out of hand. Well, I'm glad you're on it. Uh, there's nobody better to do it. There's nobody in the Senate or in the entire Congress who knows more about co- college athletics taking care of their players and winning championships in Tommy Tuberville. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. The guy raises interesting points, right? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I don't have the same sort of concern about universities not recouping dollars that otherwise would go to them that are now going to these collectives to pay players. But I, I do understand what he's talking about in terms of athletic departments not being able to offer sports that are non-revenue sports, women's sports in particular, because all of the money the boosters are raising are going into these collectives to pay high-profile players in revenue sports, right? Right, right. I mean, and then also basically, you know, the component of it where it's really not an economic transaction, right? Like that you, you basically could mm-hmm. create this slush fund that it's a patronage model yeah. for these boosters where it's like, yeah, I own the local tire shop. Uh, I'm going to sign a deal for a million dollars to this wide receiver and he's going to cut an ad for me or be sponsored by the local tire shop. But like, there's no clear, there's no ROI, clear cut ROI. It's right. really interesting. Right. And that's what he was talking. I mean, look, I think he and Manchin are focused on the schedule. Yeah. Knowing that you have an open window for trying to recruit high school athletes. What's the open window for trying to pay high school athletes and try to get them onboarded into this nil program? And I look, what he's talking about in that sense makes a lot of sense. It's super complicated for one. Um, and it's also just everything that, that you grew up thinking about college athletics, like the dirty programs mm-hmm, do, mm-hmm. are now sort of all out in the open. Yeah, it's like, so, it's like Blue Chips became a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> Like a how-to. Yeah. And you notice that some programs have had no problem shifting into nil. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. No, we don't. Oh, yeah. Have... We've been doing this under the table for years. <laughs> yeah. for, for our Zoomer listeners, you ever get a chance, go back and watch Blue Chips. That was the Shaq McNulty, movie, right? Shaq's in it. Anthony Hardaway. Chris Mullen. Yeah. Great film. It is a great film. That is, that's a good recommendation. All right. Let's get back into it. So you remember last week when I talked about how polling kind of shifts three to five points? Yeah. Yes, you did. And you know how the environment sort of comes back to Republican? Well, New York Times is now on this. Oh, no. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. We weren't told about this. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, the, the title of the article is, Yes, the Polling Warning Signs Are Flashing Again. Uh, subtitled, Democrats Are Polling Well in Exactly the Places Where Surveys Missed Most in 2020. God, I... The only thing that makes me mad about this article is that th- they're telling the the libs who consume the New York Times. I know. I like when Don't they're surprised. I like it's when like, they're wait, surprised. Wait until November. Yeah. <laughs> when that needle swings, they all lose their minds. It's so. They much- had to get rid of the needle because it hurt the libs so much. <laughs> they hurt their feelings. <laughs> they did get rid of the needle, they didn't did. they? Yeah. They're, they're like, well, this hurts the feelings of libs, so it's been removed. We can't do it. <laughs> So their point is, despite a tough polling cycle, one feature proved to be particularly helpful, a table showing what would happen if the 2020 polls were wrong, as they were in 2016, when pollsters systematically underestimated Donald J. Trump's strength against Hillary Clinton. The warning signs are flashing again. Democrat Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same exact places where the polls overestimated Mr. Biden in 2020 and Mrs. Clinton in 2016. Uh... If the polls are wrong yet again, it will be hard to explain. Most pollsters haven't made significant methodological changes since the last election. And, that, and that's a, to me, that's the wildest thing. Is it says if the polls are wrong yet again, it'll be hard to explain. I mean, like, well, no, they're not. They haven't changed the model. That is that is the <laughs> that's the wildest shit. Is that we have this conversation every two years? The methodology never changes. The pollsters never apologize, and then we write the next article being like it could be wrong again. Oh well. Oh, right. Well. <laughs> so, so let me explain just for the layman what why it is. It's not like they just make up these numbers. 
it's harder and harder to get a hold of voters mm-hmm. to ask their opinion. Yeah, right? no doubt. Very, very difficult. And I do think that there is some systemic bias against Republicans just in that, just in that piece. But most pollsters at this stage succeed or or don't succeed on their estimate of what the composition of the electorate will look like. Right? Yeah, because there's a difference between calling registered voters and calling likely, likely voters. voters. And likely voters are obviously going to change over time based on how you see them turning out in November. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest swing versus some of these media polls that are just, we're going to call 800 registered voters. Yep. And modeling and like, that, like trying to figure out who the, the mm-hmm. LVs are is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. But so the way you look at midterms is usually the po- the party in power. Your voters get a little lackadaisical. Mm-hmm. Or they're disenchanted by the results that they've seen. Right. Or something that they just don't have the same kind of intensity because they just won. Which is also why Biden handed out $10,000 to his supporters. Totally. Like, right. It's a bribe. Right now. Complete bribe. Totally. On the other hand, each state's very different. And they vote differently as a result of that. Right? There are red states that in some ways are totally immune to the effects of the Biden administration, thank God, because they have terrific governors. Right? But they're also aware of what's happening on a federal level. And so, like you can imagine, their turnout is probably going to be pretty high for Republicans. There are states like Nevada is a perfect example that is run exclusively by Democrats, changed election rules, ruined their economy, locked down the entire state, mm-hmm. where you, you can understand how there would be a depressed Democratic environment because nothing has gone well for the last two years. Which is where you'll also see in some of these Democrat-leaning states what they'll try to do is like get stuff on the ballot as a ballot referendum yep. or yes. like a ballot they're issue. They're like, hey, uh, legalize weed. Yeah, because what they're trying to do is juice younger turnout that would otherwise not show up in a midterm election. Yeah, they're trying to yeah. generate yeah. some sort of action yeah. here. Yeah. The problem is, is that ultimately midterms are midterms, particularly when you have a presidential approval rating that is as disastrous yes. yeah. as this one, which is why we were talking about this three to five point shift because ultimately what happens in these Senate elections is they start doing inventory on what they think about the president and they think about his party and they think about how they've governed this nation. Yeah. And they start to apply it to the Senate election based on his allies and who would like to go in a different direction. That's where you get this shift. But for some reason in a lot of these surveys, it doesn't change their composition of the electorate. What complicates this significantly this cycle is you got this abortion issue hanging out there, which from June until today has galvanized libs in a big way, progressives in a big way, and put their ballot questions in all these races up to almost complete consolidation of the Democratic vote that you will see. And 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 that also is specifically what they want. The whole reason that they leaked the memo. Right, is they is want a little more juice. They, they, they want wanted a longer time runway. to get their mobs yeah. out and, and yeah. get them fired up. Right, so, but... Back this off and think about it logically, not even like a political pollster or pundit. If you think about this logically, for three months, you've had an absolute canon of, of motivation for liberals to consolidate their vote. Yeah. If you are a Senate Republican or Democrat, that after three months of five to one spending against your Republican op- opponent and a consolidation of all of the liberals behind you because of the abortion issue or accomplishments or what have you, 
and you still have 45 on the ballot. If you're at 45 on the ballot, the next 5% is basically impossible. I mean, think about that. <laughs> think about that. Like the way that Republicans have been outspent, like you said, five to one. Right. With the consolidation, the Democrat base for the Democrat, if you're at 44, 45, that's, insane. that's a tough spot you've to had, get to 50. You've had the biggest gimmies ever. It's, yep. it's the surest sign that all of the fundamentals we've been talking about for a year and a half still exist. Yeah. Right. That this is a referendum. And like last episode, we tried telling people like the media has tried so hard to hype up these Dems and be like, oh my God, like uh, uh, Yamish on Meet the Press who was like, the number one issue for voters is actually abortion. She said 90% of voters. 90%, which like her own network's polling says that is complete lie. It's complete. And all voters are sick of paying so much. They're paying more in taxes now than they are for like food, clothing. Shout out to to Matt Gorman for putting up that bullshit. Yeah, who's like, yeah, actually you're wrong. But but, but it's insane that like given all the gimmies that the media has given them, you know, they leaked the memo, tried to get fire up their base, handed them $10,000, right? And that they, if you still can't be running away with a race, I mean, my God. For for most voters, this midterm election is about what all midterm elections are about. It's what ails you. Mm-hmm. The economy is bothering them. Crime is bothering them. The mm-hmm. people in power are bothering them. If Republicans were in charge of the White House and in charge of Congress, voters would pick the Democrat. But Democrats are in charge. So voters want the Republican. You they know, want change. Who, they just want change. You know who I have to give a shout out to is Governor Abbott, who has made so like the the border, like Kamala lied and said that the border is secure. The absolute disaster that's happening at the border, libs have purposely, purposely tried to make sure it doesn't make the news. They've tried to push it from anyone's mind and be like, oh no, you know, this is about saving democracy or some other bullshit. He's been sending right. the migrants, which Texas border towns, which lives <laughs> yeah. have said, shut shut up and suffer to these border towns. They've said, shut up and suffer. This is your problem. We, we in, in this city, we believe in like, right. what, what's their bullshit? They're like, no one is illegal. No one is illegal. Yeah. And then when he's like, okay, time to put up or shut up. They're like, okay, now we need help. Yeah. <laughs> like this is a disaster. Yeah, because he, he's busing them to D.C. and to Philadelphia and New, New York. York and everyone's complaining. Do you remember a few years ago? I always think about this remember that mayor of philadelphia oh yeah who like went to court to to be a sanctuary we city? are a sanctuary city and he did that dance and everything <laughs> remember that? and all those guys are now whining and complaining about you know the and buses the showing up because these are fundamental issues that matter to americans and yeah. the media has done their best as they always do to help the democrats but these issues are at the forefront of their mind of voters and, and, and Election Day is very close. September's halfway over, folks. Yeah, we're eight weeks away. It's a, it's, well, listen, we're eight weeks away, which is why all effort. And what's your line about this? The red wave is not something that's happening. The red wave is something we are doing. That's exactly right, Smug. Can't and, get complacent. And that is why we have to give a shout out to the Republicans who are not just looking out for themselves. They're looking out for everybody else. First on that list for me is is Ron DeSantis. This is a guy who's running in one of the most competitive states that there is in this nation. Mm-hmm. I don't it, a blowout, a blowout in Florida is three points, right? I mean that's a it's a very we've had a lot of success there lately, but it's a divided state. Like it is definitely still a state Democrats can win. He's not only taking care of his own business as we've seen every single day, mm-hmm. and is it comfortable leading the polls and is is doing very well. He's going all over the place to rally for Senate Republicans, for governors Republicans who are running for re-election. I mean, that is amazing. 
it's it's truly this is what you look for in leadership like who's spending their time and resources trying to actually change the country they're not talking about it Mm-mm. they're not talking about it that's not enough they're actually doing something about that right DeSantis and this is according to the examiner he's been in Pennsylvania I know he's been in Nevada he's been uh, apparently campaigning in Arizona as well uh, Glenn Youngkin another one who's apparently signed up to do a bunch of, of rallies for Republican governors or Republican aspirants to be governor across the country. Good for him. Yeah. Right? Nikki Haley. She was just in Georgia for Brian Kemp. That's going to be an absolute must-win race. Yeah. Um, I think she's going to Nevada. Uh, she's been all over the place. you love to see it. You know, uh, Ted Cruz is another one. I can't say enough good things about Ted Cruz. He, he shows up everywhere you ask him to show up to try to rally Republicans to the cause of these Republicans. If you have the capacity as a Republican lawmaker to do something about a meaningful race, not something that does something for you, mm-hmm. but something for the cause, we'll take note of it. Yeah. And that, and I think that's important. Is like so, so frequently you only hear like, uh, and, and, and the media wants this and, and tries to stoke it like a, like a conservative circular firing squad. I think it's important we just did right there is you have to recognize there's a lot of incredible Republican leaders on our side who are going in, who are putting in the work, trying to get this red wave to happen because it's going to take all of us working. Yeah, it, it is going to take, and it takes different kinds of Republicans in different places, right? The other one, Larry Hogan, we had on the program, he's in Oregon campaigning for Christine Drazen. Don't sleep on Oregon. Don't yeah, sleep dude. on that race. I mean, we know people on that race. That is one that everybody's like, oh yeah, it's Oregon. Well, yeah, I don't something's, know. Something's happening. People don't. People have not appreciated what's happened to Portland in the last few years. I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. I think the the theme here. <laughs> I think the theme here is, you know, if you think politics is shit, grab a shovel. Boom. Yes. Exactly. Yes. That's you know, a great we way just to don't want. It. It's easy when you got a podcast. You you know, we get to sit, sit here for an hour and bullshit and criticize things. But sometimes you got to get out there and actually do the work. You got to do stuff. And we're going to get out there and do stuff, too. Well, that's we got why stuff I always, you know, when I arrange for us to go to Iowa and Florida, <laughs> you know, to do to do yeah. the, to the Ron DeSantis launch, I wanted to make sure we reelect him. So I was like, I'll do an event for you. Yeah, DeSantis. yeah, yeah. You're very... We'll do your launch. Yeah. You're, you're why he's up in the poll summit. Bingo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, now he's... Thank you for freeing up DeSantis I've so tried. he can travel the rest uh, of the you country. You know, I, I saw it ahead. I saw it ahead of time. I was like, I'm going to put in the work. He's a hot ticket, though, I will say, having been places where he has been... And seeing the kind of reception, I mean, that the he guy gets, gets a crowd. Yeah, I mean, we saw firsthand the guy gets a monster crowd. He does. He does. Um, have you guys noticed Democrats just basically not wanting to defend themselves whatsoever? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the situation is tough to defend. I mean, the the first and foremost is the Fetterman situation, right? right. Which has many wrinkles to yeah. it. But but Oz has been pushing this guy to debate. Clearly, he does not want to for a, many many reasons. But it's not alone in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of different places where Democrats are like, if I'm not talking about abortion to four uh, left-leaning columnists, I'm yeah. not going on That's the it. debate stage. That's basically it, it. They all saw the whole like Biden hide in the bunker strategy. Yeah. And they're all trying to, they just want to hide, hide in the basement. I, I think Look. if I'm Oz, if I get Fetterman on the debate stage, my first question is, why do you pet the rabbits so hard? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> that is just a fucking blast. <laughs> My God. 
like he's a De Niro in Awakening. Like, like, he, like, he's, like he's Lenny in My Cement. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, that's the one, though, yeah. right? And there's a lot of people who are very cautious about, like, don't talk about the guy's health issues or whatever. But, like, Oz raises a decent point, and the way that he raises it is really, really solid, which is, it, that's not, it's not me. It's not, like... Can I ex- execute a, a competitive advantage against my opponent? It's like, what are you saying to the people of Pennsylvania voting for you? Like, that you can't disclose whether you'll be able to go to work or not? I mean, as a you lieutenant governor, disclose. he should have disclosed this way beforehand. Like, that, okay, I have this condition, and I'm not listening to my doctor. I'm not taking the medication. What does that say about an elected official? That, like, number one, you're supposed to disclose this information to voters. You didn't think voters were worthy of that information. Number two, you're like, I don't even listen to my doctor. That's I just, I, I just, you don't listen to my voters. I, He's I, like, this doctor's <laughs> trying to save my life. I don't care. <laughs> I, I just straight up think it's funny that he looks like Shrek in basketball shorts. Can we talk about this for a minute? Yeah. When the fuck did we start electing people that look like Fetterman? Like, I, <laughs> look, I, I have been, I have been. And that's Call the thing me. is like it's not an every man thing because this is a guy who who got his house right he lives for in, a dollar so for one dollar yeah. right. his parents who, who, basement who who is on his like father's I think he still gets a, a stipend from an his allowance. father an allowance he's still getting an allowance this is not an every man this is just someone who dresses like they don't give a shit about you like I understand right? that politics is partisan and has become convoluted over the years. But at some point, you'd like to think you're sending your best to represent you. Yeah, they're right? not sending their best. This guy shows up in a hoodie and gym shorts everywhere he goes and pretends like I don't. What's the appeal? The message the, is not every man to me. Who the Cause, who's going to listen to that guy? He shows up in the Senate in that in like a tie around his neck and, and he's like, oh, let me tell you about the good things I'm going to do. I'm be like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you know who's not going to listen to him are people who voted for Pat Toomey, Arlen Specter, and Joe Biden in suburban Philly. They just don't. They're not, they're. Not they don't like that style. It's they just so down. funny that that primary had Connor Lamb, who looks like a freaking model, you know, veteran, <laughs> you know, great story. They're like no thanks, fantastic on the stump. But they're like, nah, dude, give me Shrek and we want Shrek. Shorts. <laughs> it's just wild. It's incredible, yeah. right? I mean, it, we'll take we'll take the six four sling blade, please. Oh, unbelievable! <laughs> <laughs> Duncan just coming in hot today, man. Well, we have the same issue in Arizona, right? Well, Carrie Lake, I think during the primary, showed enough to the rest of the country that you don't want to get in front of her. She does at not all. back down. This no. is it, it, it is Arizona now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cara, oh, that's very fun. <laughs> nice. She, but she, I mean, she brings it hot. Yeah. Right. And so her Democratic opponent, not surprisingly, refusing to debate her at all in wow. Arizona. Amazing. She's just simply hoping the same thing every Democrat in other races is hoping that the media will handle everything for them. And, and, and I'm telling you, the whole reason she's not debating is there have been so many videos of Carrie Lake, some reporter trying to jump on her with some kind of like a gotcha. And she just like alley dunks on that right right yeah and the reporters just got like like speechless and that's that's like this happens again and again this is not that's like, with zero prep right zero this is prep. Extemp- she just rolls up and dunks right she's just extemporaneous like that's how smart i mean she's very smart well and she's also had a lot of experience on tv yes. so you're not going to fluster her right right you get cameras in her face she doesn't handle that yeah. situation I, I, that is going to be a much much more competitive race than people like in dc you talk to me they're like oh this shit, that lady's crazy oh carrie yeah. okay oh, no, carrie's gonna win that bro. okay i think carrie's gonna win that yeah. thing i really do um 
So it's interesting to see what Democrats are fretting about, though, yeah. in all of this. And you know what Democrats fret about based on their favorite outlets fretting, <laughs> yeah. right? That's that's that's. True. It's never it's never like uh, you get it from the horse's mouth. It's all like sort of strategic, and they're like, "Hey, get this to the donors because we got a real problem here." Right. right? They're only, only going to believe it if we send it in the packet, and it's coming from MSNBC exactly. or NBC News. Exactly. It's this way of them having a therapy session internally. Yeah, right? Like, right. It's well, always it. like, like Dem pollster sounds the alarm stories, that sort of stuff. And it always appears in like four or five hours. Because they need their safe space. Yeah. And, you know, keep we can just talk about it. And silo yeah. their information. <laughs> so they've done like six straight weeks on what shitty candidates the Republicans have, right? That's all they write about. Mm-hmm. It's all shitty these people are and this, that, and the other thing. And then today or yesterday, they write this story our best opportunity. Republicans pose serious threat to Cortez Masto in Nevada. Oh, no. Right? And this is kind of the sleeper race because Democrats have not been able to make the case that Adam Laxalt is somehow this radical psychopath that, like, should never be elected. And they try to make a little bit of a case in a primary to try to muddy things up. But largely, it's been impossible for them to make the case that they've made out of some other Republican candidates. So it's kind of gone under the radar. And, and the strategy, I think, is very telling on like a macro level is you, these people, typically your elected official is there to help you with the issues that matter to you the most. Right. Their job is to help the American people. The American people's concerns are inflation, crime, a border out of control, all things that the Democrats are directly responsible <laughs> for, so they absolutely can't talk about. So what are they going to say is, well, uh, uh, other guy is fascism. Right. Like, you have to vote for me or democracy ends tomorrow. But even that hasn't... That's the message. But even that hasn't worked, Smug, and so now the story is... This is how they're going to flip the Senate. They're going to Republicans are going to win in Nevada, right? So they want Democratic donors focused on Nevada. right, right. That's what they. That's that's the whole purpose. But here's what they but, don't. So. But there's another observation. Okay. Um, that's a counterpoint to that. Another observation they make in this story is that the Democrats have outspent Republicans three, four, five to one in Nevada, and yet it's a very competitive race. It hasn't moved so the polling a lick. Yeah, so yeah. their point is, you spend spend as much as you want. It's not working in Nevada. <laughs> it's not working, right? So so the point is, is they go through all the things that are ailing Nevada. Quite obviously, the COVID lockdowns, and this is, I'm just going to quote directly, COVID lockdowns had an outsized effect in the state, which relies heavily on the service industry workers. While the economy is rebounding, working class, and that's so arguable, by the way, but that's a very NBC yeah. point. Yeah. Working class voters are still hurting. The cost of housing remains high and employees complain of low wages. Well, yeah, of course, with 10% inflation, you're going to complain about that kind of thing. because You know what? Right. I, I think the journals are going to start, in, in short order, they're probably going to wait until after Election Day. I think they're going to start caring about the economy. I think Ashbrook, you, you, you brought this news. Goldman Sachs announced they're going to have layoffs. So all of a sudden, the journal's like, what? <laughs> all my friends are getting laid off? <laughs> what the hell? Right? I thought the economy was good, Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, seriously. No, it, I mean, for real. So... Anyway, to wrap up the Nevada piece of it, they're trying to focus donor attention here. That's the one area where they don't have the problem, mm-hmm. right? I just looked at the numbers the other day. In the month of October, Democrats are outspending Republicans 40 million to 14, mm-hmm. right? They have like two super PACs and the DSCC invested to the hilt, tens of millions of dollars. And Republicans are trying trying to figure that out. If there's a something that you can do right now, if you're in Nevada or around, you know, and you care about Senate Republican politics, help close that gap. Mm-hmm. Go to AdamLaxalt.com. Help 
close that gap. Full disclosure, we have advised Adam Laxalt. Yeah. Uh, as a as our, our day jobs, we have. But that is one area where the Democratic spending so outpaces the Republican spending that it's literally the only barrier to victory here. And it's literally the number one race in the country. Yeah. I mean, by the libs' own admission here. And I think like we're going to see uh, with those service industry workers kind of the same thing we saw in 2016 in the Rust Belt. Yeah. Where, you know, you had the big labor bosses being like, oh, we're all in for Hillary Clinton. We're all in for Hillary Clinton, you know. But like you're like line worker, like UAW, like union guy. He's voting for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think those service industry workers who saw these lockdowns, saw their livelihoods taken, you know, taken away, are going to vote for Adam. Lassel. Of any state that completely relied on having, you know, uh, tourism, tourism industry, you know, right, like, in person events, livelihood, yeah, let, let alone their schools and everything. Yeah, and these Dems if, destroyed it. If if you work in the hospitality, and just for others who are not working in hospitality, if you work in the hospitality industry and your office is closed because of the pandemic, there's no laptop you take home to do your job yep. from Zoom. Yep. You, right. you just don't have a job. And so a lot of people were without work. And then all of a sudden, the the pandemic is over. Jobs start coming back, thankfully. But prices go up. Yep. So you can't afford anything. You can't. You finally have a job. You can't. You can't afford things anyway. Also, also, gas prices through the roof. All Democrats are saying is like, oh, they've come down a little bit. Guess what? They're Buy an very, electric car. They're, they're very, very high in Nevada. And Nevada is a place where people drive to work. There's no like train that everybody's yeah. taking back and forth. You have to drive if you want to go to work, and it's very expensive. And these guys are having a hard time with it. It is no wonder that they want change and they're going to get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of how to invest your money, how's that for a transition? That's great. Yeah. That's a good set. Uh, Masterworks, longtime friend of the program. Long time. Um, you recall Masterworks, what they have done is they have figured out how to buy fine art and commoditize it, basically break it down and allow you to buy shares of this art. Mm-hmm. The rationale of it is to try to figure out how you can get your your common everyday sort of low dollar investor involved with something that produces a much higher return right rate in a time of inflation. Yeah, and, and I think that's key. Is is you know they they they've shared some internal numbers with us. Uh, so so like Holmes described, they buy these like big time like Banksy's yeah and- Banksy's and Picasso's like this is serious. This is not like right you know. Joe saw an opinion I was down. These are serious. This is like serious money making art, but right? like not something you could go to like Sotheby's and afford. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I can't roll up and drop fifty mil for yeah. a Banksy. But what they do is 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 they buy it and then they split it up so that like everyone can get a piece of piece of it, and then like as it goes up in value, everyone gets a part of that gain. It's you know it's, it's actually a pretty brilliant idea. Um, but the internal numbers that I've said is so far they sold six paintings for an average net return of twenty nine percent. And uh, their collection of art is appreciated by fifteen point three percent, according to internal valuations. Wow! Yeah, twenty nine percent on the stuff that they've sold. Yeah, I right. really wish the guys who like manage my four hundred one k could promise that return. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, stock market's not looking so good. Not so hot right not, now. Not compared to that. And that's the thing is like, they, and again, they point out this is through COVID inflation, the recession. Like, we're not legally allowed to say the word recession. Mayor Garland's going to kick in the door <laughs> if we say the word recession. But through recession, even these guys have been putting up numbers. Yeah, so it, it, anyway, 
there's a very very popular company now mm-hmm. and because of i mean you you 29 percent appreciation yeah. I mean, those are good numbers like those are good numbers and so they they have a long wait list at ruthless we can help you skip the line yeah, on that deal that's a big deal you just simply go to masterworks.art slash ruthless that's masterworks.art slash ruthless Look at the important regulations and disclosures. Do your homework yourself, but also look at the art. Uh, listen, I'm not an art expert, but I like 29%. I agree. Yeah. Right? And nobody's guaranteeing anything, but I can guarantee you that you're going to have at least a fun time checking this out as a potential investor. I mean, I want a piece of a Banksy, personally. You kind of You want that, dude. You deserve it. That's, I, I on, deserve that's it. on brand. I deserve it. Yeah. You deserve it. Anyway, all right. So let's talk about this. Um, have you guys tracked this Visa MasterCard Amex issue? Yes. Yes. This is very disturbing. I'm actually super concerned about this. So this is according to the Wall Street Journal. Visa MasterCard American Express will add a new merchant category for firearms retailers. A victory for gun control advocates who have pressed the financial industry to do more to help curb mass shootings. The new merchant category code was recently approved by an international entity that sets standards for payments in the industry. Merchant category codes, or MCCs, are four-digit numbers that networks use to identify types of merchants by the goods and services that they sell. Obviously, what they're doing here is creating lists. That's it. Like, so, so many, so many Second Amendment advocates for so long have warned that, like, okay, like, registration, all of this is just, like, an attempt to create lists, find individuals to target to begin confiscation process right and 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 as you've been seeing in in a number of different industries the left has clamped down on forcing corporations right. to do their bidding. what they couldn't and get done through the government they've now gotten bingo. through corporate america they're like okay so we'll have the credit card process this is what we've talked lists. about yeah this is what we've talked about from day one is that the democrats have used corporate america to try to meet their end goals yeah Right. And corporate America this far has been incredibly responsive to that. It is alarming. The fact that that these guys do this kind of thing without any sort of blowback blows my mind. I mean, that's the thing is, is I think there needs to be significant pushback. This is absolutely insane. You have you have private companies and all these people do is that they're they're going to create a list of transactions. And basically, they're just tagging individuals. They're tagging individuals. So here, here is one way, and I mean, we're not announcing any news here on the Variety program, but this is one way that when Republicans take the majority yep. in the House, yeah. you'll see investigations of a variety mm-hmm. of subjects, obviously the Biden administration, but also major corporations. And I think that one of the things that these House Republicans will be able to do is put the microscope on woke corporations and find out what's going on behind these decisions and figure out a way to stop them. It's going to be incredible. So, I mean, a good way of looking at this is, you know, all right, they're they're characterizing gun purchases one way in their internal sheets. Why are gun control advocates so interested in that? Mm-hmm. Why would they be interested in that? Well, it's because under a democratic government, you can then subpoena those sheets. Mm-hmm. They become public. It's like we've talked about the Democrat need to try to get into and disclose donors to nonprofits mm-hmm. because then they then go intimidate people and try to shut down their businesses. Yeah. This is the same thing. 
And we've already witnessed like how far they'll go. Remember the truckers, the Canadian truckers? Bingo. Yeah. Where yeah. they turned off their GoFundMe account? Yeah. I mean, we've seen this in practice, what, where this leads. And then they leaked the list of people who donated to them and tried to get okay, all of them. They had businesses shut down for people who gave five bucks to these folks. Right. Yeah, You're going to have to show up like uh, Floyd Mayweather at a gun range, you know, just like piles of bills. Yeah. You know, <laughs> buy like all cash. All cash. <laughs> cash money, Seriously, baby. Seriously. It's scary. Um, all right. This one's for you. This one's for you, Smug. Um, I saw in the New York Post that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's judicial collar, remember that white sort oh, of yeah. lace, lace collar. situation that she had? Uh, it's going up for auction. They estimated the sale price of $5,000. So, so we discussed this, right? And I would have loved to be able to pick this up for five k because like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we would not have this court, this conservative court, we would not have Roe v. Wade overturned. If she wasn't like, when Obama asks her, he's like, hey, could you retire? You know, we can replace you. She was like, no. No. I'm a girl boss. She resisted. You can't. She resisted. <laughs> well, it turns out it, it. we checked this yesterday. Did we tell you we checked this? No. So we, we downloaded the app for this uh, this auction site and uh, went into the to see what it was trading at. It was currently $50,000. It was fifty. Yeah. I mean, can yeah, you imagine paying fifty k for this? No. I mean, what is, like, you know, it's going to someone who wants to put it as part, like, one of these libs who's got more money than sense wants Ruth Bader Ginsburg's collar in their Zoom background. Well, if, you it, know, if it was, like, oh, hey, everybody at the meeting today, you know what that is behind me? That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's collar. Well, if it was five, I was going to say, let's group fund this it, thing and give it. it and give it to Smug and have him present it in his yeah. home so I, I put it at the top of my christmas tree three, three <laughs> days left three yeah, days yeah. left on the on the auction and it's it's at 55k That's 55 uh it's just a little bit out of reach you know shout out to her it's like without her doing that i mean that is the funniest thing and what i love is that like a lot of the like you know super commie left-wingers understand that dynamic and they're like she was not a girl boss dude she like cost us everything <laughs> we should just donate it to acb it's so <laughs> yeah good. so yeah so, she should so wear ACB, it out. like not God, profit. That would, yeah. that would crush them so good all right here's the last thing we're going to do before we get to sarah huckabee sanders guys you recall the brian stelter the champion brian stelter the potato the potato himself was canceled by cnn and it was really it looked like a hard road but you know what he landed uh, on his feet there's there's one special place for all failures to go. <laughs> he is headed to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to he'll join the Shorestein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at the Kennedy School for the fall of 2022. Walter Shorestein Media and Democracy Fellow. And I imagine he can teach these kids a lot, like how to look like you're 60 when you're... how He's like 31. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. That is the one wild thing I about mean, him. It's like the opposite Dorian Gray. This guy did something. When I found out he was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a deep... That's a deep cut, dude. That's deep. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, when I found out he was in his 30s, I was blown it's, away. It's like, how? What did you do, man? Oh, man. I mean, that's a hard, whatever he's doing, it's like, it's not working. Do the opposite. Do the opposite of that. Anyway, so good news for all you uh, upcoming media people in Harvard University. I don't ever want to see any of you anyway, because you're not going to amount to anything, but you're going to learn from the best. I mean, can you imagine, like, number one, it's, it's your folks. It's your folks who are paying, like, an arm and a leg 
for you to go to Harvard. And what do you do with your time there? It's Brian Stelter. Listen to Brian Stelter. Like, what? My God. Uh, Anyway. All right. So this is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I want to welcome to the program uh, somebody you all know. You know her very well. Uh, (laughs) Her name has been omnipresent in politics over the last few years, and she's now going to be the next governor of the great state of Arkansas. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be with uh, some friendly people in the media. I mean, yeah, we're not exactly media. We're more like propaganda. <laughs> but we, you know, I mean, it is kind of nice to do an interview every once in a while where you're not getting pinned down on every horrible thing in the world, right? Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to lump you in with the the dirty side there. <laughs> yeah. Well, if anybody knows it, it's you. Uh, let's start with your campaign. Listen, um, because of your success, because of how successful your campaign's going, you know, you don't read a lot about it in the national media because, you know, you're kicking butt and taking names down there. But but how are things going? They're going really well. I mean, so far, we haven't been kicked out of any restaurant since we've been in <laughs> Arkansas, which is amazing. And, uh, you know, we had an incredible showing in the primary back in May, cleared the field uh, with 87 percent and now you know running full throttle in the general and have a pretty good lead but taking nothing for granted keeping our foot on the gas it's been pretty overwhelming in a good way the response we've had from every corner of the state and uh, it's really been exciting and fun to go back to so many Arkansas communities that I grew up going to with my dad and it's just been truly an incredible year and a half on the campaign. No, it's awesome. Well, before we get into the issues, I do want to talk a little bit about how you were brought up into this world of politics, because I don't think there's ever been a candidate of any office who's more well-trained to run a campaign. (laughs) Uh, Like you said, you grew up working on your dad's races. Uh, How do you think that's, is that just like born in your blood or you just get really excited about it at a young age and just suck with it all the way through? You know, I absolutely loved being on the campaign with my dad when I was a kid. He ran for office for the first time when I was nine. (laughs) And as you know, the the campaign circuit, particularly in the South and in a rural state like Arkansas, you're hitting all these like small town parades and festivals. And my older brothers and I, we would go to the festivals and uh, my dad would give us a huge stack of push cards and we would pass them out. And once we were finished, we could come back. And back then he would give us $5. I tell him all the time how cheap he must have been that we only got $5 for that much work. But uh, $5 back in the day would get you, you know, a thing of cotton candy and a ride on a tilt-a-whirl, which was pretty fun uh, (laughs) growing up and hitting like the the rural parade circuit. I love that. Five bucks. I mean, look, he was watching the campaign cash, right? It's a responsible (laughs) politician. Don't don't defend him. He was cheap and we remind him of it every day. I love it. Well, your dad, your dad continues to be an incredibly talented man. I'm sure you learned a lot more than anything. What's always exuded every one of his campaigns and and just his media personality is his love of people and being around people. That's clearly been passed on to you. Yeah. And that was one of the things like I loved on the campaign is watching my dad. You know, I I thought I had working on his campaign, one of the best jobs in the world, because I loved the campaign aspect and I got to do it with my dad. And to me, there was not much better than that. And like you said, he just has this kind of happy warrior spirit. Um, He genuinely loves people. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And probably one of the, the most fun parts of campaigning are the incredible people that you meet 
all around the country as you go into these different places. Yeah, I know. And, and the ability to take their stories with you, which is something he's done so well. I got to imagine that those young experiences you had are about as close to a master's degree in all things Arkansas <laughs> as you can get, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I don't have I don't have an official master's degree, so I'm going to now uh, print out my own certificate and say that you gave me one. Oh, there's no, yeah, no question about it. I mean, if you do as many campaigns as you've done in the way that your dad did them, I mean, you you know every corner store, right? Absolutely. We know every like great little restaurant. In fact, that's one of our team's favorite things to do is find uh, the best kind of off the beaten path, local food in an area um, and go in and, you know, just visit with people while we're there and enjoy good local food. And that's one of the things the South does very well. Oh, incredible. Now, the only problem is it's like one of the least uh, healthy things in the world. It's not like we're <laughs> making salads here. We're, we're, we love anything that you can deep fry and then we want to cover it in some kind of very high calorie sauce. So uh, trying to stay like a tiny bit healthy on the campaign trail may be one of our biggest challenges these days. You got to walk the heck out of the parade route. Absolutely. Yeah. My kids, my kids now, it's really funny to see kind of this new generation uh, out on the campaign and they're sort of experiencing a lot of what I did growing up, but they uh, love a good parade. And at first I thought, wow, my kids are so proud. They're like wearing their gear, they're cheering for their mom. And then I realized I look over after the first parade and I'm cleaning out my kids' pockets and my son, George, who's seven, had about 800 wrappers in his pockets. And I'm not sure he threw a single piece of candy, but uh, I quickly discovered the real secret to why they were loving the parade circuit. You're going to get your, your your dad's oversight on that. You're going to start rationing out the candy to the kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I want to talk about another thing that obviously prepared you for the campaign trail, probably where most of America got to know you as President Trump's press secretary. What an experience that had to have been. <laughs> uh, I like to say, I hope it is the hardest job that I'll ever have. But There's it was no also uh, one of the best and most incredible experiences I could have ever imagined. You know, I was there for two and a half years. I came in with the president on the first day um, and, you know, baptized by fire is the understatement of the century. So I did my my first big on camera briefing was the day after James Comey was fired. Oh my! And I, was the, I forgot about that. I was the deputy press secretary at the time, and uh, <laughs> you know, quickly quickly took on the the full time job shortly after that. But um, how does that work? How does that work? Like you're sitting around the press room, and you had Spicer. I think you even had Scaramucci involved in that. In that, they're like, Sarah, you got this one. <laughs> yeah, well, Sean was on Navy duty. He had uh, a ton of backup time from the campaign. And so he was going to take Navy duty. And over that time frame, the president, you know, decides to fire Comey. And I was like, well, should we call Sean? The president's like, no, Sarah, you got it. You're fine. And uh, get out there. And one of his favorite lines um, when he knew it was going to be really difficult was, Sarah, have a good time. And I was like, have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> How is it possible to have a good time? You've met these people, right? <laughs> yeah, it was basically like covering your body in a dress made out of steak and walking into a room full of wolves and hoping to come out alive. Uh, I mean, but it felt like at that point, I mean, every single day had to have been a little bit like that. 
it was, you know, and, and that was part of the, um, you know, drive a little bit is because we could see our team firsthand every single day, just how out of control and out of touch the liberal media had become and making sure we were pushing back and fighting back um, was really important, not just to the president, but it became personal for a lot of us on the team because we experienced their wrath and their anger and just their distaste for all of us uh, on the daily basis. And so, which is amazing, right? And dealing with that in a professional capacity. I mean, Look, one of the things that I appreciated most about you is when you took that job, you were able to handle them with respect and professionalism, despite the fact that none of them had any respect or professionalism back. Yeah, I I will say there were a couple bright spots uh, of decent people in the room, but I never named their names because I don't want to ruin their careers by saying something <laughs> nice about them. But there were a handful, they know who they were that were, uh, you know, pretty good to work with and actually just wanted to do a good job. But they were certainly the exception, not the rule. I mean, when you have a reporter that questions a Southern woman's ability to bake a pie <laughs> over a holiday. Uh, oh my God, know, I forgot about that. Treat. Yeah. I forgot about that. They actually questioned whether or not you were able to make a pie. Yeah. April Ryan, she's a real gem. I uh, posted a picture on Thanksgiving and uh, I was with my my husband's family in Kansas of this, you know, perfectly cooked pecan pie, which is sort of my specialty. Uh, You'll be happy to know it's a bourbon chocolate pecan pie. Thank you. And um, my dad, I'm still convincing him like 10 years later that the bourbon cooks out. So <laughs> I always have to make a different pie for just my dad um, that doesn't have the bourbon in it because he's has he's yet to believe me that it cooks out. He thinks he can taste it. So uh, but I post this picture and she, you know, immediately pushes out a, a tweet saying that, you know, I hadn't made the pie. And then, of course, like, I double down and tell her, you know what, I'll do you one better. Not only did I make this one, but I'll make one for you. And so at Christmas time, I baked like six and I posted uh, the the whole process on Twitter from the ingredients sitting out on the counter to the mixing in the bowl to the pies in the oven. And then I brought them to the White House to the press pool and uh, she refused to even eat my pie. She was afraid I had somehow done something to her. I had most people were happy to join in, but she still refused to to take my gesture as anything but a, a nice thing. I love you showed your work too. What a classic <laughs> slap back. <laughs> so so is she the was she the worst? I mean I gotta imagine Acosta ranks right up there. Oh yeah. I mean it's hard to narrow down to the very worst. You 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 almost need at least like 10 slots. But yeah. Acosta is certainly you know, at the top of that list, one of my favorite things. So right after we had um, taken Acosta's press pass away, oh, it yeah. was it was kind of I mean, oh, there was a little joy in that, I have to be honest. Oh, but yeah. uh, it was hilarious when all these reporters come to our office, to the White House press office, and they're like, why did you guys do this? Now you're going to make us defend Acosta. <laughs> they didn't like him either. <laughs> well, he was just insufferable, right? I mean, it's impossible. If, even if you are, and there are very few, as you said, but even if you are a well-intentioned member of the press, watching that guy grandstand every day during the Trump administration had to have been the worst. 
It really was. I mean, every time he got up, it was like he was giving, you know, a 15 minute monologue. Um, and you're wondering, Jim, is there a question here? Because he had to have his moment in the sun. And people all the time ask me, they'd be like, Sarah, why do you even call on him? Just ignore him. I'm like, no, because the American people need to know what we're up against. They yeah. need to see how crazy and how to, out of touch uh, a lot of the people in the media have become. And if he's going to be the face, we're more than happy to let him. Yeah. Oh, I, well done, too, because of everything uh, that definitely came through in Technicolor. <laughs> I, mean, I think we started hack madness uh, in large part in response to to your elevating these guys and showing them for what they were. Yeah, well, I, I love following along and I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, Jennifer Rubin always makes it pretty far oh. into uh, the tournament because my, my, my favorite types of hypocrites are the ones that uh, you know, mask themselves in conservatism, yes. but have no idea what it really means. And she's got to be at the top of that list of trying to wave her conservative flag, yet constantly attacking the people who are out there defending conservative values on the daily basis. Which was somewhat, I mean, I guess this has been going on forever, but it seemed like it just sort of came to an apex in the Trump administration. I know you, like like me, probably had a lot of friends you thought were conservatives along the way, and you all thought you were sort of fighting for the same things. And then you get in the middle of the Trump administration and all these people are shooting at you. That had to have been a weird feeling. Yeah. You know, people that you'd known forever that all of a sudden, you know, ideologically you think you're aligned right. um, and we're out there, you know, taking shot after shot after shot and nobody steps up to defend you. Um, particularly in some of those spaces. It was surprising, um, but it was also very revealing. And I think it prepared a lot of us to take on difficult challenges day after day and, and learn you know, not to back down and not to shy away from who we are. Yeah, no, well said. And one of the things I, I think translated really well from your tenure as press secretary is, I mean, look, any way you cut it, uh, President Trump had a very unconventional uh, operation, right? To say the least, yes. <laughs> and and you came from sort of a nuts and bolts understanding of politics, how it ought to be, you know, done. And he clearly went in an entirely different direction. And yet there was no real separation. You felt it, the continuity during your tenure felt like you were sort of all on the same page at the same time. Um, that had to have been like a personal relationship, your ability to sort of read what he wanted, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I had a great relationship with the president, still maintain a good relationship. And, um, you know, it's funny. I'll never forget one day I'm walking out of the Oval Office and um, the president had put out a more colorful tweet that day. And <laughs> we're kind of talking through uh, different responses and things about it. And we're stepping out and I bump into to Jared Kushner and he said, Sarah, I finally get it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, I've always wondered how you just stay kind of even kill and calm and, you know, something happens and there's your feathers don't get all ruffled. And he said, I just saw your dad's Twitter feed for the first <laughs> time. He goes, he's got some really hot takes out there. And I was like, yes, I said, very different personalities, very different people. But my dad is very much a say what he believes and thinks um, regardless of what anybody else might be saying that he should say. And, uh, <laughs> that was great preparation. You know, he is known for a hot one-liner 
And it, it certainly helped prepare me in that way. But, you know, that personal relationship, I think, with both the president as well as the staff, um, you know, I have lifelong friends that I made during the administration. Anytime that you're going through sort of the, the battle in the trenches that we were, um, you find out very quickly who your friends are. And I made some amazing friends during that process. And we really worked hard and worked closely together. Um, and that, along with a really good relationship with the president, understanding what he wanted and what my job was. You know, people would say, tell him to stop doing this and that. I'd be like, you know what? A quick reminder here. Nobody elected me to anything. Right. They elected Donald Trump. And my job is to go out and tell his story and tell his message. And so understanding what my role was in that job um, and having that relationship with the president, I think, is what allowed me to do that job and uh, hopefully do it as well as I did for two and a half years. Well, what allowed you to succeed in some ways is having a good sense of humor, too. I got to imagine <laughs> I got to imagine there were uh, mornings where you sat back and just burst into laughter. Like, how the hell am I going to defend this one? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, you know, that's one of the things I feel like the president doesn't get credit for. Mm-hmm. He's one of the most fun, most charismatic, enjoyable people to be around. And if if you have a sense of humor, you will love working for and with him uh, because you're going to laugh all the time. Yeah, no question. So you get out of the Trump administration. I imagine that most people, after enduring what you went through for for two and a half years, would be like, "All right, get me out of politics for a while. I got to reset the compass." But but you didn't do that. You kind of went the other way with it, and and wanted to get more involved. Obviously, moved back to your home state, wanted to get involved at the highest level and run for governor. Tell me a little bit about that motivation. You know, for me, certainly I, I wanted a break from the the nastiness of Washington and the intensity of the White House, but not a break from, you know, what we set out to do and the objectives and the public service side of it. I love Arkansas. This is home for us. You know, I was born and raised here. My three kids have all been born here. My husband and I started our marriage here. This is our home. And I love the state and I love the people but I don't like what is happening in the country. And I felt like we had an opportunity to serve and an opportunity to fight back against some of the craziness coming out of Washington because we knew what we were up against because we'd been fighting against it for a while. But we also needed somebody who had kind of that heart and vision and compassion and ability to lead and felt like we were uniquely qualified to step into this role uh, and serve and run. And so far, it's been a tremendous year and a half. And we think we're in a great position and to win big in November. No question about it. Everybody's rooting you on from the sideline, too. I, it, I'm curious you know, I mean, you mentioned the direction of this country, which I don't, you know, where do you begin? Because basically everything the Biden administration has touched has turned to absolute, you know what, um, I, as you're talking to people, what, what, are, what's, what's burning them up? The I mean, I got to imagine inflation, the economy, but it's, you know, I also, I heard you over the weekend talking about education. What, what are people saying out there? You know, I think one of the biggest things that people are concerned about in this touches every aspect of their life, whether it's their business, their health care, their, their kids' education, uh, just how they engage with the community, is the fact that they feel like there is an out-of-control government that's trying to take over and make decisions for them that they have no business making. More than anything, we hear people, kind of that underlying theme of every one of those areas 
is people want their freedom back and they don't want somebody coming in and telling them what they can and can't do that are decisions they should be making themselves about what is best for them, what is best for their family, what is best for their business. And the you know, radical left and the Democrats in this country right now have a totally different view. I always say for me, it's very simple uh, when people want to understand the differences of a Republican and a, and a Democrat. I said, if you want somebody to make decisions about where your kids go to school, what kind of health care you're going to have, how you run your business, you're a Democrat. If you want to make decisions about those things yourself, then you're a Republican. It's a pretty simple deal, isn't it? It's just, and what's happened over the last you know, year and a half, two years, is that all of that that was sort of almost in a, a comic book ter- characterization of what a liberal is has actually come to fruition, right? I mean- these people have le- left no doubt whatsoever about their intention to just have the government run the lives of everybody. Absolutely. And it's scary. Some of the ideas you see that they come up with, yeah. you'll read it on a front page somewhere and think, surely I'm looking at the onion or the the bee. And then you realize, actually, no, this is the New York Times. Um, and it's pretty astonishing to see the crazy ideas they're coming up with that they're trying to sell as mainstream policy. Oh, it's absolutely right. I mean, look, as governor, you're going to have to deal with the downstream of all of that too, right? I mean, the the stuff that's coming out of the federal government has put people that run states in a hell of a spot. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's one of the reasons the governor's races are so important. We have 36 governor's races across the country this year alone. And if we elect strong conservative governors to step up and fight back, but also create a coalition of those governors, I think it gives us a lot more power. We've got some incredible people that are running states right now. And being able to join in the forces with that um, is something I'm very much looking forward to. Oh yeah, no. You're, listen, you're going to be a powerful force. We all we already have. I mean, you're not even governor yet, and we have people around the country that are begging for you to come and and help them. Uh, and, and you and you've been helping out uh, colleagues around the country. Uh, certainly, trying to. I mean, obviously, our focus is here at home in Arkansas and uh, winning our race on November eighth. But as much as we can, um, have been out on the road campaigning for other conservatives and trying to help make sure we have strong majorities in the House, hopefully the Senate, and definitely in uh, governors and state legislatures around the country. Well, God bless you for doing the work. Listen, Sarah, I got three big questions for you. uh, And these are the ones that people pay attention to. Knowing you. (laughs) No pressure, right? Everything else is junk up until right now. (laughs) Knowing you, the first one is going to be well thought out. Uh, If you could plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Um, so the, definitely start with Arkansas cheese dip, not to be confused with what some people refer to as queso. Okay. In case you are not aware, cheese dip was invented in Arkansas. You can look it up. I know you guys love research. It's a That fact. is a lofty claim. It is. It is. But it is a true one. I mean, it says it on the internet and everything. So how could it be wrong? <laughs> it's got to be right. It's got to be right. So for sure, Arkansas cheese dip. And then I would go a little bit classic with uh, steak. And everyone on my staff loves to make fun of me because I'm a big mac and cheese connoisseur. And they accuse me of you know eating at the table with my children, um, which is partly true. But um, a steak probably that my dad cooked 
uh, with a side of, of mac and cheese. So certainly not on the healthy side, um, but very good. And I'd have a strong bourbon uh, sitting on the table with me. So but don't husband, tell my dad about that. If you about could. the bourbon, yeah. If you could leave that out, that'd be really great. Yeah, nobody's gonna hear this. Don't worry. Yeah, that's we'll good. <laughs> <laughs> what was Mike Huckabee a grilled dad? It sounds like he's, he knows how to handle a steak. He he is really um, great when it comes to uh, grilling, barbecuing. That's kind of his his specialty item. Ah, oh, nice. Okay, I didn't know that. We learned something else now. Um, yeah, when I was in college, I would come home and make him cook for all of my friends uh, so that we could have at least one good meal about every month. Um, and, and that was his his specialty. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he loved that. Bringing all your college friends home. I can know what can go wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So second question, if you never got into politics, right? I know it's almost impossible to imagine uh, given your life and career. But if you never got into it and you had this blue sky where you could do absolutely anything you wanted to do in, in life, what would it be? So I, I know you're not technically allowed to pick two things, but I'm going to go with my first would be a travel photographer, okay. um, which is totally out of the box. But I would love to just travel all over the world, my kids and a camera and uh, not an influencer, but like a, you know, like National Geographic kind of thing. It's an important um, distinction, Sarah. Yeah, an important, important distinction. Important distinction. And then the the next one, if he would let me, uh, Coach Pittman of the Arkansas Razorbacks, I'd be happy to be his assistant. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, like just a cheerleader, just an encourager, mostly just because I would then get to be on the field for all the games. Um, and I think that would be really fun. Well, you know, they have that player personnel position, which basically just motivates people. I feel like you should be pretty good at that. I mean, I feel like I could really thrive in a role like that. So if this whole governor thing doesn't work out, I hope you'll put in a good word for me to uh, take on like team encourager. I love that. That is great. And one of the better answers we've heard. That That's fantastic. A little bit like being a middle relief pitcher, right? It's like not on you, but you're in the game anyway. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I, I own all the gear. I can wear all the stuff. I'll be right there in the heat of the moment, but if things go bad, like I'm just there to help pick up the pieces. And you can take an awesome picture when you win. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe I even get to dump the Gatorade every once in a while. (laughs) I love that. All right. So last question, and this is a little esoteric. I know you've heard it before, but for the benefit of our audience, uh, we view every successful person as motivated by kind of one of two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. The thrill of victory person is the sunny optimist are always charging up the hill to the next endeavor. Uh, the agony of defeat person, every success they've ever had lasts like two seconds, but any setback they've ever had, they carry around like a backpack and work that much harder to try to never repeat it or put themselves in a, in a situation where they have a setback again. Sarah Sanders, where do you find yourself? You know, there's very few things I love more than winning. <laughs> um, and, and I'm very competitive, but I have to say um, the agony of defeat because I, I despise losing um, and I'm, I will be very hard on myself and whatever I did, I will make sure I never repeat. Um, very big about kind of analyzing, stepping back, looking at every little thing we could have done better or, you know, avoided, 
uh, and making sure I don't make that same mistake twice. So as much as I would love to say, oh, I'm all about, you know, the sunny, optimistic victory. If I'm being totally honest, it's got to be <laughs> the agony of defeat. Well, that's what we aim for here on the Ruthless Variety Program, total honesty. And I believe we've gotten it all the way through here. Listen, Sarah, good luck with everything. If our listeners can help you out, do you have a website or anything that they can go to? Absolutely. SarahForGovernor.com would love their help. And uh, feel free to move to Arkansas. I know there's a lot of states out there like California that people are leaving, and we've been more than happy to welcome them here with a uh, slice of pecan pie and maybe even a glass of bourbon. Listen, you can add recruiting to your resume for there that you go. program. I mean, that, that, that <laughs> sounds like a good recruitment pitch to me. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Good luck out there and let us know what we can do. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all having me on. She's just a joy. You know, the thing that's so true about her, and she said it herself, is that she doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low. She's sort of not bothered by all the incoming. But like having the life experience that she's had as Trump's press secretary. Yeah. I mean, imagine being able to continue with that. I mean, and, she and dealt with the firing squad every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah, but if you noticed, you know, when she was there, you know, as a woman in a position of power, you know, speaking to the media every single day, she wasn't heralded as some nope, no. I- icon like Jen Psaki. Nope. You know, why do you no. think that? A is? mom of three, right. dealing with it every day. Right. How many Vogue covers right. she got? She got mm-hmm. zero. In fact, they were like mocking her makeup yep. every yeah. night. And, and no one called that sexist. Yeah, I, know? I, I forgot she reminded me of the April Ryan actually questioning whether she could bake a pie. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people forget. Well, she's doing great work. Stay stay involved and stay in touch with her because she's going to be a big deal for years to come. She's young. She's got a lot of energy, and she is a, uh, a terrific, terrific representative of the Republican Party. So with that, fellas, I think we did it. I think so, too. Absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. And thank you so much to our listeners. Great episode. You know what, gents? I'd say we do it again. So until next time, minions, keep the faith. Hold the line and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.